Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. You know, it's a founder that has done it multiple times. We're gonna be talking about scaling, we're gonna be talking about financing, exiting, you name it, all the above, and especially in a segment that is very, very hot nowadays. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Justin Borgman. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in Chicago, but growing up in Boston. So tell us about your upbringings. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a town called Acton, uh, sort of northwest of the city. Good public school system. You know, very, very lucky to, uh, to, to grow up there, I think, and, and get a great foundation on, on my education. You know, had an amazing mom who was a huge influence in my life. Uh, taught me a lot of things about how to, how to be a, you know, a good person and work hard. And uh, so, you know, very, very blessed. So why computers out of all things, Justin? Because I, I, I understand that you started quite early with computers. I, I did. I was a big nerd in, uh, in junior high and high school. And, you know, they fascinated me. I think it was really the, the power of what you could do with them that was really interesting, the creative power, I guess I would say. And so, you know, I was trying to teach myself how to program probably at 12 or 13 years old and installing, you know, Linux for the first time, you know, uh, when, when Red Hat was a pretty brand new company back then. Uh, and, you know, just really, uh, you know, really encouraged by, uh, I guess I would say the power of, of what computers could do. And I, I, I was also very much impressed by the companies that were being created at that time and the huge impact they were having on the world to really transform the way that we do things, you know, and in that day and age, it was, you know, Cisco and Microsoft and, and then later, you know, Google, uh, ultimately transforming the way that humans uh, interact, and and that was that left a positive impression with me on on the power of entrepreneurship. Ultimately, if you want to change the world, I think entrepreneurship is a a great way to do it. And at what point did you realize that you wanted to become an entrepreneur? Because I mean, it took you it took you a little bit. You know, you 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 did work for places like Raytheon or 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 for example, the other one was. Let me see if I remember well. It was Lincoln Lab, but yep. you didn't go like right away at it. And in fact, you graduated, you got your computer science degree, you graduated, and then all of a sudden you are here in this 9-11 environment, which was not the best one. But what, what would you say that it, it, it took, why it took you so long? At what point did you realize that you really wanted to do something? 
Yeah, well, I, th- I think the seeds for me were planted probably back when I was like 12 years old and um, a, a desire to sort of change the world around me. Um, you know, I also remember back then, uh, one of the things that my dad and I would do together is watch the news every night. And uh, and I always had questions on, you know, why, why is that happening? Why is that happening? Why is the world the way that it is? And, and it was always sort of driven to figure out ways to change that. And to me, there were kind of like two paths that you could do that. You could enter politics and go that route, but it felt like you'd probably have to sell your soul along the way if, if that was the path you chose. Uh, but entrepreneurship was actually, you know, to me, another way to do that. And so I, I, I was kind of like, had, the, had this hunger or desire to, to have an impact and, and, and change the world in, in some way that didn't actually come to fruition until much later. And I think that was simply because uh, I didn't really know how to do it. So I wanted to, but just didn't know how, didn't, didn't necessarily know what it took to uh, get a company off the ground. And you're absolutely right. I graduated college uh, uh, in, the, in the same year of, of 9-11 and, and ultimately uh, defense contractors were hiring. And that's how I ended up at Raytheon and then uh, later uh, MIT Lincoln Lab. But obviously, you know, eventually you ended up doing your MBA. And on the MBA program, that's like kind of like where they give you that push to really do something. And and in fact, there is where you met the co-founders of your first of your first business, Hadab. So tell us what was that process of of meeting them, and then you know deciding that that it was time for you to finally take that leap of faith and and bring something to market. Yeah, I mean, graduate school for me was an amazing experience. Um, just really opened my eyes to sort of what was possible. I, I learned a tremendous amount, met some incredible people, and and that includes a, a few folks in the computer science department who had this idea. Uh, really wrote a paper called Hadoop DB, and so this is this is back in 2010, 2009 timeframe uh, when Hadoop was just starting to gain momentum. Hadoop, of course, this open source platform for storing and managing massive amounts of data. It was really born out of Yahoo and the internet giants. And the idea of the paper, Hadoop DB, was to basically give Hadoop database-like functionality and, and allow you to do data warehousing analytics within this Hadoop-based data lake. And that was a totally novel idea at the time. Uh, you know, I read that paper and I was like, wow, this is this is huge because prior database technologies or analytical database technologies were super expensive. Teradata, Oracle, uh, you know, companies could not scale on these these platforms, both because of the technology, but also because of the cost. And so this represented a way to uh, do analytics on anything, uh, on mass amounts of data, um, but do it within this sort of open source data lake environment. So I encouraged them to commercialize that research with me. Uh, and ultimately, we, uh, we started my first business, which was, which was called Hadap. So what was the business model there? How were you guys making money? So we were selling a uh, proprietary product that would sit on top of uh, a Hadoop-based data lake. So you would already be running Hadoop, and then you would install Hadapt on it, and uh, and we would sell based on the size of that environment. Um, back then, it was measured in terms of number of machines. So how many machines are in that Hadoop cluster? Okay, that's ultimately how we charge for giving you this fast SQL access on top of that. And in terms of capitalizing the business, how did you guys go about that? So in that business, we raised money pretty early in the in the game. I guess we you know we had like a research prototype that my co-founder had built, and uh, ultimately leveraged that to get a couple of really early customers playing with it, and then raise uh, initially some seed financing from angels, and then ultimately a Series A from uh, Bessemer Venture Partners and Norwest Ventures. 
uh, at that point in time. This is a 2011 timeframe that that we uh, that we raised capital, ultimately raising about 17 million, which seemed like a lot to me back then. Seems a lot smaller now, but at least back then, 17 seemed like a lot. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And and obviously, first business, first outcome. You know, that's not the typical norm. No, I I I believe that. Uh, Teradata was the one that acquired the company, and it was reported by the press at about 50 million mark. But but how was that process like? Because obviously the first time around, you know, I'm sure that for you seeing now the full cycle and really getting to understand that now it gives you full visibility as you're executing with your latest company, which we're going to be talking about it in just a little bit. But I'm sure that it was kind of like nerve wracking going through that for the first time. So tell us about this acquisition process. How did it come about? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will say the entire Hadapt experience was a, a tremendous education for me. Uh, you know, when I started it, I was 29 years old, first time founder, first time CEO, uh, kind of had to learn everything the hard way through that process. Hadapt was, uh, was a four-year four year game for me and, and then ultimately selling it to Teradata. I, I think we were fortunate that Teradata and also some other large you know, legacy uh, database uh, vendors were looking to increase their portfolio and, and add the ability to work within this open source ecosystem that, that Hadoop was, uh, was creating. And so, um, so they were looking to bolster their portfolio and add the ability to query data in Hadoop. And that was ultimately, I think, the rationale behind the acquisition. Uh, and, and, you know, it worked out well enough for, for all of us. You know, I think the, the education in particular was ultimately what ended up driving a lot of the reasons we created Starburst down the road. So um, it was a, yeah, it was a tremendous experience. And then even my time at Teradata was actually really, really uh, educational for me to see a, a large company um, trying to adjust to changing uh, in- environments in the market. I mean, obviously now with Teradata is what they call the vesting and resting. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how much resting you had going on in there, but definitely the vesting. And you were yep. for about three years, and that was um, a pivotal time, you know, in, in your career because you know that during this time is where you actually met the co-founders now of your of your of your business of Starburst. But um, yep. how was you know the journey of of you meeting your now co-founders and and then you realizing, hey, you know, I think that there is something here, and perhaps we should bring this to market. Yeah. So you know, during that during that period. One of the challenges my my boss had given me, a guy named Scott Now, who was uh, the president uh, of Teradata at the time, he later actually went on to be the CTO of Hortonworks, and he was a great guy, and he he gave me a lot of latitude, and he he sort of asked me to try to figure out the future of data warehousing, and the way I took that sort of directive was really, you know, sort of looking at Teradata as being a classic innovators dilemma case study where you know super uh, successful company early in its in its journey and and for much of its life and as a result of almost their own success had a really hard time changing direction uh, and cannibalizing their existing business that's that's really ultimately what I think prevented rapid change so I got to be that change agent or at least got to try to be that change agent I would say I, I didn't necessarily change uh, Teradata's direction the way I had hoped but um, but ultimately, you know, was was given the opportunity to really explore, and it was in that context that I met the creators of an open source project uh, at Facebook. Uh, that project was initially called Presto. Um, uh, that's now uh, uh, known as Trino today uh, uh, because of some trademark changes a- along the way. But bottom line is that technology allowed you to do SQL analytics on data anywhere, and that was, you know, my first business was SQL data SQL analytics on Hadoop. 
this with SQL analytics on anything. And that was really, to me, eye-opening that you could actually query the data where it lives because data warehousing is traditionally all about moving data into one central repository before you can query it. So there's a lot of work and time involved in that. You've got to create these ETL pipelines and extract data, transform it, load it, and, and migrate it into one single bucket, if you will, before you can analyze it. And that was the Teradata model. Uh, today, it's it's actually the Snowflake model is the same model. It's just in the cloud rather than on-prem. Uh, and this was like a totally different way of doing it. This was a, a true paradigm shift of basically saying, you're going to push the analytics to where the data lives and query the data um, you know, right where it is. No need to move the data. So I got really excited about that. Since it was an open source project, uh, our team at Teradata started actually contributing to the project and making it better and adding features and functionality. And in the process, I got to know the, the creators at Facebook really well, Martin, Dan, and David, um, uh, who who I, I just thought were absolutely brilliant and, you know, really, uh, you know, had created something that I think could transform the industry. And so that was kind of how I first got introduced. So then what was that journey of, uh, because I mean, you were all in different companies. So how were you all, you know, able to come to the point that, that you guys needed to do something, that you needed to build a company around this, and then also to time so perfectly, giving the notices? <laughs> right. So... So for me, my handcuffs, if you will, were sort of coming off in uh, in 2017. For me, I, I knew I wanted to do another startup. I think just like the way my psychology is wired, when when I feel like something wasn't perfect, uh, I want to do it again to get it right. It's sort of like a, a perfectionism thing. And and for me, like there were just so many painful lessons, so many scars from the first experience that I was like, I can do this better if I if I get the the chance. And and so I knew I knew I was going to do something ultimately was able to convince essentially my former team from Teradata to, to leave as well. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we have so many co-founders at, at Starburst. And ultimately, we started this business as the company behind Presto, again, now called Trino. But we were the company behind this open source project, really driving uh, a lot of that roadmap. We were able to uh, recruit the creators from Facebook to join us as well. Um, and today, of course, we have not only the creators, but all the leading, all the uh, biggest contributors to the to the project uh, here at Starburst. And uh, and we initially bootstrapped it. We actually were selling uh, support initially to existing users of the open source technology, and that allowed us to get it off the ground without even uh, raising venture initially. Because I mean, what ended up being the business model of Starburst? I mean, how how do you guys make money today? Yeah, well, we've actually had kind of uh, three chapters in our history with respect to the, the business model. The first chapter was just support because we hadn't built any proprietary IP yet since we were starting kind of on day one with this mission of let's see if we can bootstrap this. And so that was just support. You know, it was kind of like uh, Hortonworks had a similar model uh, on the Hadoop side, and we were just basically implementing that. Now, there are pros and cons to that approach. Uh, the pro was we could get off the ground instantly and start to win contracts. The downside to that approach um, was that we weren't actually creating much stickiness uh, because they could just use the open source. And also the value proposition itself wasn't that strong because a lot of the people who had been using Presto or Trino uh, already knew how to use it. And so they didn't necessarily need our expertise uh, at, at that point. So we realized pretty early on that we would have to create features and value that were above and beyond what was available in the open source project. And for us, some of those early features that we developed were uh, really around security features, access controls, being able to control who can see what. 
um, that didn't exist in the open source. And so that was the first transition, really going from a pure support model to what some will call an open core model, where the, the core is open, but you've got this extra proprietary value around it. And, and that became the beginning of our first real flagship product, which was called Starburst Enterprise. Um, since then, and more recently, we Starburst Enterprise is still a huge part of what we do, and that, that is the majority of our business today. But more recently, we've now introduced a, a second product, which is called Starburst Galaxy, and that's a cloud product. So that's a SaaS product where we manage everything for you, and we're adding a new value proposition in doing so where, where we're just removing complexity and kind of managing your experience. So that's the third chapter, if you will, on our, our business model path. And talking about managing, 12 co-founders, Justin. I mean, that's a <laughs> lot of co- I think that I think that out of ev- all the episodes that I've done, and it's now hundreds and hundreds, you know, you guys have built the company with the most amount of co-founders that I've ever come across. So how did mm-hmm. you manage to really balance and keep that alignment between all of you and then also to make sure that the egos were checked and left uh, at the door? Yeah, well, we we uh, th- that's a great question. So I think first of all, you know, the project itself had uh, ha- has just so so many great people involved with it that it was kind of impossible to choose like who would be involved and who would not. And and so we we just wanted to try to include as many people as we could, so long as we could continue to fund that. Again, when we were bootstrapped, you know, we had to bring in enough to to pay the salaries for folks. And that also allowed us to really develop uh, software very quickly because these these folks all knew knew the ins ins and outs of the of the code base so so quickly. There was no ramp time required. They just kind of like immediately were able to be productive. Um, so those were some of the benefits in terms of managing all of that. Yeah, you know, we all have to kind of manage our egos sometimes. Right. I think you know, that's one of the reasons one of our values is humility. And we try to remind ourselves of that. That humility is actually really really important here at Starburst. That nobody has. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the the only idea or the only way to do something and that we go into situations looking for the best idea, not our idea. Uh, and so um, so that's that's a corporate value. Sometimes we have to remind each other of that along the way. I love it. I mean, in your case, I mean, you were alluding to it. You did wait a little bit, you know, until you got that first round of financing. I mean, you guys were bootstrapping and you were at about 3.3 million in revenue, which is pretty remarkable before raising any kind of money. And then you decided yep. to raise money. I mean, what was that point where you realized, hey, guys, you know, we, we got to go out there and get some sophisticated investors behind this? Yeah, I would say there were two reasons we, we, uh, we, we sort of changed our, our view on going from bootstrapped and profitable to hyperscale you know, venture back. Number one was the, the market opportunity itself. We were seeing that customers were pulling us in and thinking about us actually as an alternative to Snowflake, which was... Uh, which was amazing because Snowflake has been around a lot longer, had, had already raised probably a billion dollars at that point, and we had raised nothing. And we were seeing that particularly like very leading progressive companies were saying, no, no, we want to do this all um, with your stuff instead. We like the fact that it's, it's open, that we can query open source data formats, um, that it's flexible, we can access the data where it lives. And, and I think really the notion that our platform uh, does not lock you in. I think that there's a feeling that Snowflake is going to be the next Oracle and really become this like vendor lock-in, uh, you know, black hole, if you will. And and Starburst is is like the complete opposite of that. And so that early traction really started to in- increase our own confidence because 
we might have been perfectly fine just running a lifestyle business that would grow organically over time. But I think that the magnitude of the opportunity made us feel like, okay, we, we should go for this. So that was that was one one reason. And then the other was uh, Mike Volpe in particular. Mike uh, is an investor at, at Index. Uh, he's had a ton of success around open source uh, companies in particular. Most recently, Confluent was one of his his companies, but also Elastic, Hortonworks. Um, he's got Cockroach. He, he's, he's done this probably more than just about anyone. And he's just a fundamentally awesome guy. Uh, he's the best venture investor I've I've had the privilege to work with. And uh, and he actually found us, which was which was kind of uh, amazing. You know, he he found us and actually encouraged us to think bigger and uh, and make this thing you know as big of a success as possible. And so I think those two factors, kind of the the market traction that we were seeing as a backdrop, plus a little bit of encouragement from Mike, uh, was you know was was what it took. So how much capital have you guys raised to date, Justin? So we've raised about 164 million uh, so far. And again, you know, because we're profitable early on, we really didn't start burning any of that capital until more recently. Um, so we, we try to still be as capital efficient as possible. But yeah, we've raised 164 million. And you were alluding to, you know, being, you know, this, this investor, one of the best investors that you have, if not the best. So what are the key traits? I mean, this is now your second rodeo. I mean, you've raised a bunch of money from many, many investors. So you've learned, you know, how to separate the investors that are good from the investors that are not going to be so good. So what were you looking for, you know, on the investors that you've onboarded and what do you keep looking for in terms of trades when you decide to build those, those what, what are essentially long-term partnerships with these people that you're welcoming, you know, to share the journey with you guys? Yeah, and that, that last point you made is an excellent one. I, I like to say this is a marriage you can't get a divorce from. There like, you go. You, you really have no way out other than you <laughs> potentially, you know, uh, leaving the business, which right. you don't want to do as a founder, certainly. So, um, so it's really, really important. The, the other good, adv- the other advice that I give, uh, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs is focus on the partner, not the firm. I think that people very often get caught up in the brand names and the prestige and. I personally don't actually care that much about that. Now, Index is a great, really well-known firm. We also have Andreessen Horowitz on our cap table, obviously very, very well-known firm. But I care less about the brand name and far more about the the individual human, because to your point, that's who you're going to spend a lot of time with. That's who you can't necessarily change down the line. Um, So that's just a little bit of context. In terms of what I looked for, I think number one, like integrity and you can you can kind of figure that out pretty quickly by doing reference checking. And and the key there, by the way, this is really important lesson. Um, do the reference checking uh, from entrepreneurs that the VC did not give you the name of, right? Because like you can ask them for references, and they're going to give you the ones that are you're probably active investments. So the entrepreneurs are too too afraid to give you the truth. Um, <clears throat> but also they're the ones that are handpicked by them, right? So try to go, you know, just go on Crunchbase or wherever, find other investments. Uh, ideally, even some that didn't work out to get a real sense of of the person. And you know, in Mike's case, for example, his reputation is just stellar. I mean, I, I spoke to a lot of entrepreneurs about him, and he, he's just a he's a pro entrepreneur type of uh, investor. He's very patient. Uh, he's there when you need him, and not when you don't. So he's not like breathing down your neck. Uh, he has so much experience that the pattern matching that he has from that experience is incredibly valuable. It's kind of like everything I would say you look for uh, an investor, to be to be perfectly frank. And as we're thinking about people here, you know, I was mentioning that 
one of my good buddies, his name is Brad Wyman. You know, he's actually an employee, you know, with you guys, part of your team. And, and I've really got to, to be exposed to that sense of ownership, that excitement that, that he has for the company. And I'm sure that that's shared all across the board with other employees. So how do you guys think about culture? How do you build that so that people are so pumped to go to work every day? First of all, I appreciate that. Brad is, Brad is amazing. So we're very, very lucky to have him. I think it's kind of an infectious uh, feeling, if you will. I think like when you're around other people that feel that way, it starts to spread. And I think, you know, at least in our early days, pre-COVID, you know, there were 20, 30 of us who were just absolutely fanatical about this business because you kind of had to be fanatical to join a company that hadn't raised venture, that was flying under the radar, um, that was bootstrapped and therefore like pretty frugal. Like, you know, we doubled up on hotel rooms when we traveled, you know, there, there are a lot of stories our guys could tell you about where we tried to, to pinch a penny. Our office was in a basement, literally in a basement. You know, you could hear the, the toilets flushing and the, and the things moving <laughs> through, you know, through the pipes. So like it was about as uh, gritty as, as you could get. And, uh, and, you know, I think what's special about that is almost because of that shared experience of not having luxury, uh, people appreciated the whole thing that much more. And I think that is infectious. You know, we, we've had some incredible early employees who uh, are obviously still with us today and just become kind of ambassadors of culture uh, out there. Um, now, it's challenging in COVID. I do, I do want to be clear because now you're not physically with people as much. So trying to maintain that culture uh, is a little bit harder. But that's, uh, uh, yeah, that would be my answer. I mean, you guys have been hyperscaling like crazy. I mean, in COVID, I mean, you added at least 250 people that don't know really each other in person. So uh, yeah. h- how do you really uh, deal with that in a way in which you're able to scale up as well, you know, that culture mi- mindset so that things don't break? Yeah, it is super hard. And I don't want to pretend that I've got it all figured out because I, I spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about this, worrying about this, uh, focused on this. And in fact, we were going to get the entire company, which is well over 300 people now, uh, together physically in Boston uh, last week. And unfortunately, we decided you know, pretty last minute that we were going to make it a virtual conference just because our international people couldn't join because of travel restrictions. And, and even domestically, some people weren't comfortable anymore just with, with uh, the Delta variant. So, you know, that was very sad. Um, I was really, really looking forward to getting everybody together in, in one place. And so we just have to make the, the best of it. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Zoom. Uh, but also, I would say that um, individual teams, individual regions, individual groups are getting together uh, where they're comfortable and, and seeing each other and starting to create those those human relationships. You know, in addition to that, we're we're trying to do more on company events to try to, you know, have fun together and enjoy joy time together, you know, outside of just uh, you know, working all the time. So it's it's a it's a battle. I'm not gonna say it's easy, but it's um it's 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 something we do spend a lot of time thinking about. And just for the people that are listening and and, and tuning in right now, I mean what's the What's the, you know, the size or the scope of Starbucks data today? I mean, anything that you can share around number of employees or anything else? Yeah, so we're about 320 employees today. Uh, I, I can't disclose revenue results, unfortunately, but we're growing exceptionally quickly. We'll, we'll uh, triple again this year and continue to be on a very high, high growth path. And in terms of the future of data warehousing analytics, I mean, where mm-hmm. do you think things are heading? Yeah, great question. So what's interesting to me is I think there are um, a few different opposing views on, on how this market evolves. 
there's Snowflake, which is really a, a cloud implementation of a very old uh, data warehousing model. It's, it hasn't changed in 40 years. They are Teradata for the cloud, which again, necessitates a lot of data movement and ingest and consolidation. And, and ultimately as a byproduct, you end up with vendor lock-in. Another approach, which is more of what Databricks is promoting, is a data lake, which uh, data lakes have advantages because uh, you can use open data formats, so you're not really that locked in. Uh, you can do a lot of different things within that data lake. So Databricks' strength is really around training machine learning models. Starburst's strength is around running SQL queries and using BI tools. And you can actually have these both, both these tools working together side by side and accessing the same data. Um, so I, I guess, you know, if I had to choose between the two, I would say, you know, we like the data lake model and, and what Databricks is trying to do, but we actually see a, a third model, if you will, that, that we're most excited about, which is uh, increasingly becoming known as a data mesh. And this is this idea that data is decentralized um, just as a practical matter. You end up with different data silos, different departments have, have different data sets. And this, this idea, this, this quest of trying to pull all the data together in one place is kind of a fool's errand. It's never really successfully worked in history. Uh, you're always going to have other data sets. And so instead of trying to fight against the grain, the data mesh basically says access the data where it lives and that there are actually benefits to this decentralized approach where you can have people who know the data kind of own the data and be the, the domain specific uh, owners of that. And they can create data products that they then share with the rest of the organization. So for example, maybe there's a, a web team that owns the web log data and you want to share up a data set that has all the clickstream uh, data and make it available to others in the organization. And now the marketing team can work with that. And maybe the finance team wants to run some analytics that relate to that or the product team or what have you. And you're thinking about it in this more decentralized uh, fashion that really kind of democratizes both management and access. And that, that works really well for us because essentially we're this single point of access, this distributed query engine that can query the data where it lives. So we obviously love the data mesh concept. We think it's practical, pragmatic, and ultimately allows for much faster velocity for our customers who can now go directly to the source rather than having to talk to IT to create IT pipelines and load all the data into a data warehouse. So. Uh, obviously, I get passionate about this, but I'll, I'll pause there. So let, let's expand on this. So imagine you go to sleep tonight and yep. tremendous news, right? So you wake up in a world five years later and you wake mm -hmm. up in a world where the vision of Starburst is completely realized. What does that world look like? So I would say in that world, in that future world, I would think of us as a little bit like uh, the Amazon.com for data within your enterprise, meaning that you go to... Uh, a, a singular place, and you can find all the different data sets that you need uh, to understand your business better and really put this in the hands of the end user and kind of unlock the data analyst within us all. Like, I think all of us ask questions uh, and want to understand our business better. And therefore, I'd say that makes you an analyst. And if we can empower that without you having to have exceptional technical skill and have an engineering background, but rather you can say, I want this data set, that data set, and that data set. And oh, maybe also this data set from another company that we want to buy and, and pull in to enrich our analysis. You should be able to do that at your fingertips. And so that's that's the world that we believe you know five years from now can look like, and uh, and that's what we're building towards. So imagine I put you into a time machine, Justin, 
and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time with all this wealth of knowledge that you've been able to accumulate with these two companies that you have you know, been running, no? building and scaling. And I bring you back in time to that moment where you were in Yale and you were brainstorming with your co-founders about what to do in the world and what could be that company. And, and you're able to have them all, including yourself, sit down and, 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 and let's say that they're listening because typically the younger selves, they don't listen, right? So imagine all of you are listening and you're able to give them, including yourself, one piece of advice, of business advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Just one, you said, right? Just one. If you want to give me a bonus, I'll accept that too. <laughs> okay. I will say sim simplicity. Try to simplify at every stage of your company's development everything that you do. Because when you are founders, generally founders come from a lot of domain expertise, a lot of um, knowledge about the space that they're operating in. But for you to scale, you have to hire people that don't have that knowledge, right? And, and this is particularly true in the data analytics space, which is actually a very complicated space. So while I may know every possible way that a customer may want to use something and how our product could fit and all the different things they could do, that's going to be a lot harder for employee number 300 who joins us. So, so I would say start early on trying to find patterns that are repeatable, that you can simplify and almost like package up for you know, anyone, not to say truly anyone, but, you know, your, your employee number 300 can, can understand and digest and become productive, you know, right away. So I would just say, you know, keeping it simple um, and repeating those messages often, by the way, I think people forget. And I think the more you scale, the more you have to be a, a repetitive broken record sometimes about these things. Those would be some of my pieces of advice. My bonus, if there's time for it, I would just say culture is also really, really important. You know, everybody talks about culture, but I think going through this journey, I've gained more sophistication around um, what that really means. And in particular, I would say, be just absolutely maniacal about hiring people, specifically managers who are going to report to you who, who feel the same way about culture and who are going to be ambassadors. Because what happens otherwise is, you may have a particular set of values and culture that you've created, and maybe even the people around you share that. But if, you're, if your leaders don't share that, if they don't become amplifiers of that message, then you end up with different cultures within the organization. Got it. So for the people that are listening, Justin, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Justin at StarburstData.com. You're welcome to send me an email or uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you'll, you'll find me there as well, Justin Boardman. And... Um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. This has been great. Amazing. Well, thank you for being on the Dealmaker Show, Justin. It has been an honor to have you on. Likewise. Take care. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.